Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala. I am a Christian apologist. If this is the first time you've ever tuned into, uh, you know, the Revealed Apologetics podcast or YouTube channel, I am a Christian apologist. I am a school teacher and I am a youth director. So I'm always working with young people and things like that. And apologetics is such an important thing to, um, to teach young people. We need to know uh, why we believe what we believe. And we need to know the scriptures. We need to know how to apply it uh, to all areas of life. And so hopefully, if you've been following this channel, um, you have found it beneficial. You have found it biblically grounded, uh, philosophically cogent, and just good old educational. All right. Um, and I've um, had great pleasure in the many guests that I've interviewed. I always take great pleasure in being able to learn from people who um, who have done all of the studying and the lecturing and the speaking. Um Sometimes, well, I would say most of the times, the guests that I have on, um, I don't get, I don't have them on because I think people necessarily will find the speaker interesting. That's part of it, but I also like to have people on that I want to learn from. So a lot of people get fooled by the books in the background. Yes, these are my books. I have not read all of them. I don't have time to read all of them, and so uh, much of the way that I learn is through conversation. And so that kind of works out uh, well for me. Having a YouTube channel, interviewing folks, I get to have conversations with uh, with brothers in Christ to talk about things that are important. And through that, I learn. And hopefully, uh, every now and then, when I open my mouth, uh, people learn also. So, <laughs> so I hope you're finding the show uh, beneficial. Well, today I have a guest. Um, I, I will do, I will do him the honor by calling him a special guest. I always say I'm super excited to have the the person on that that I have on, um, and I am. Um, I, I have on Joshua Pillows, a very very tough name, right? Joshua Pillows, uh, and he is a a Christian. He's a musician. Uh, maybe he'll tell us a little bit about that when I when I invite him on. Um, and also, he is an apologist. He has contributed some articles on the um, Apologetic Central website, which I think is run by Arn Verster. You guys should totally check out Apologetic Central. Joshua Pillow's uh, articles are there along with Arn, Arne, I think I'm saying his name correctly, who is very um, a very wonderful uh, brother in Christ who actually helped me um, set up the Revealed Apologetics website. So thank you very much for that, Arne. Um, but definitely check out Apologetics Central and of course, Revealed Apologetics as well. Um, also, um, as I've been uh, advertising the past episodes as well, if folks are still interested in signing up for Presup U to take um, uh, the course on presuppositional apologetics that I teach, it's an, an online course that I offer, uh, you can sign up for that still. Um, the basic package is available. So we are not doing the live sessions at this moment. We'll start it up again in the future, but you can sign up for the, the course and work at your own pace. You'll get the PowerPoints, the outlines, and all of the video lectures uh, there as well. So if you're interested in that, you can check that out at revealedapologetics.com. Look up the on the menu, Presup You, and you should follow the very, very simple, simple instructions to uh, enroll in that course. All right, well, without further ado, I would like to uh, invite Joshua Pillows onto the screen with me, and hopefully um, we will have a, a wonderful conversation about presuppositional apologetics and a very interesting focused discussion on uh, something that is called the Stroudian Objection. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about transcendental arguments and some objections against the transcendental argument, uh, to which uh, Mr. Pillows is uh, well acquainted with as being uh, a, a, a student of Greg Bonson and um, a well-versed in the presuppositional literature. So super excited to have Joshua Pillows on. Joshua, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Eli? 
I'm doing wonderful. Re really excited to have you on. I have been so blessed by reading many of your articles and even just following some of your comments and discussions on Facebook. They've been very, uh, very, very helpful. So um, why don't you tell folks a little bit more about yourself? I just told them you had a really tough name and you're a musician <laughs> and you like Greg Bonson. So why don't you expound? Who are you? Tell us who you are. Um, well, I am a musician, first and foremost, chronologically speaking. That's what I started out with. Okay. Um, my parents got me entrenched in that when I was a kid. And so I studied music for, well, really all of my life um, now that I think about it. So thank you, mom and dad, if you're watching. Um, in 2016, I, uh, that's when God saved me. And so studying Reformed theology, the inevitable cave stage came up. And so I had to go through the cave stage. And um, so that happened for a while, but then I was stumbling upon a, a video on Apologia Studios by Jeff Durbin. And right. he mentioned, hey, there's this website that has all of Greg Bonson's lectures on it. And, you know, it's pretty cheap at the time you had to pay for them. Right. Um, and I, I'll never forget where I was and when I heard that. And so it was from that day onward that I kind of didn't like stop studying theology, but I went to apologetics and I um, started with Greg Bonson, Dr. Bonson. So um, since 2017, I would say early 2017 is when I started studying presuppositionalism and, um, I've gone till today. So it's been about four years now. He's my, uh, he, I call him my teacher and some people might not like that because I was only a baby when he passed away, you know, and, um, but all I listened to are his lectures and we've talked about this just over and over repetition. I've read Jason Lyle. I've watched Cy and Dr. White, Jeff Durbin. I've watched all of them, you know, and they're, they're, but they're more supplemental. You know, Dr. Bonson has been my sole teacher throughout these four years. And mm -hmm. so I hope to be an example of that. Um, you know, if, if he was still alive, what would a student of his look like? Sure. You know, what, what could come out of that? And I, and I have no formal education. I have no college degrees or anything like that. I'm either self-taught or um, taught by a private teacher, which was the case in music or Dr. Bonson, as is the case in apologetics. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, that's a short truncated version of my uh, journey into apologetics. Yeah, I think that's very helpful because um, a, a lot of people don't know this, but anyone can do apologetics. I mean, if you've been doing it since, I mean, guys, take a look at some of his articles. He knows his stuff. <laughs> 2017, that's not a long time that you've been doing uh, apologetics or presuppositional apologetics uh, more specifically. Yeah. Um, this stuff can be learned with some, uh, you know, just being very intentional about your study um, and things like that, myself included. I mean, I went to seminary. I only took one course in apologetics and it wasn't like, it was completely from like an evidential and classical perspective. I, I enjoyed the class. Um, actually, I'm trying to get my professor, Dr. Caldoun, Swice, I think his name is, he like edited one of those, uh, you know, those apologetic um, history books where they go through the history of, of um, the, the Christian apologetics throughout church history. Yeah. Um, and so he's a, he's a really sharp guy, but you know, I took one course in apologetics and 99.9% .9 of what I learned in apologetics was completely and solely independent from my, my seminary, um, my seminary work. So it's something that we all can do. And of course, as we know, first Peter chapter three, verse 15 says that we are all to do it. Right. So that's very encouraging based upon what I know about what, you know, because I've read your stuff. Um, I, I find that very impressive that you've been able to get a firm grasp on it. Of course, we always have room to learn, uh, yeah. but you were able to do that in such a, a short time. So, um, thank you for sharing that. I hope, hope that's encouraging for, for, for folks listening. 
Um, all right. So, um, well, let's start with some basics then. I always ask folks to define their terms uh, for those who are just tuning in and maybe uh, they don't know what presuppositional apologetics is. Why don't you define for us the presuppositional method as you understand it? Um, well, as I understand it, I would put it in three different ways. I, I'd explain it in three different ways. The first is that it's a Christ-centered apologetic. Okay. Start on the authority of the scriptures, of what Christ says in the word. Um, we don't pretend neutrality. We don't even attempt neutrality. We believe it's completely impossible mm -hmm. and it's moral. You're either with Christ or you're against Christ. So uh, first and foremost, presuppositional apologetics is an apologetic method that rests on the scriptures. Nothing else but the scriptures. Um, secondly, it's a, a covenantal apologetic. We okay. are covenant keepers of, of the Lord and he has saved us. And so our mission is to defend the faith from the covenant breakers. And so there's this antithesis between us and the covenant breakers. We always need to keep that in mind. It goes in hand in hand with um, the issue of neutrality. Okay. So it rests on the authority of Christ and the scriptures. It's a covenant apologetic. We recognize the covenant. We don't just shoo it away temporarily. Let's get on some neutral ground here and explain the Christian method. And then we'll, okay, now we'll come back to Christ. We stick with it firmly covenantally. And thirdly, it's a worldview apologetic. We don't argue over isolated evidences here or there as a sort of um, stepladder to get to the whole Christian worldview. We argue as the Christian worldview as a unit. Mm -hmm. All other units, all other worldview units, atheistic, Hindu, Muslim, whatever. We take the whole unit as a system and argue that on its own terms, it justifies intelligible experience. Well, and so basically the argument, as Vantil always put it, was um, the best, single most best proof for the existence of God is that without God, you couldn't prove anything. He is the ultimate presupposition, the ultimate precondition necessary for intelligible experience, whether it be you know, laws of logic, uh, human dignity, moral absolutes, uniformity in nature. You have to accept the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview must be true in order to explain some of the, all of these things mm -hmm. of intelligible experience. And so we yeah. take that argument and then go to all of the non-Christian worldviews when they challenge us and that's our defense of the faith and say faith and say that not only does your worldview reduce to absurdity and skepticism but your objection to the christian worldview already presupposes that the christian worldview as a whole is true so you have to assume the very thing you're arguing against and that's to me that's just the power of the transcendental program is you have to assume it's right in order to argue that it's wrong yeah, so that's in short how I would you know put presuppositional apologetics. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a great um, summary of the method. Let's let's kind of back up a little bit and define some terms here. And I've defined these terms before in past episodes, but I think it's it's good to remind folks. Um, you used um, the language of neutrality and autonomy. Why don't you define those terms for us and tell us why um, those are big no nos when we're doing um, biblical apologetics. Um, a neutrality is an attempt, and I emphasize the word attempt because it is impossible, but it is an attempt to rid oneself of most, if not all of your presuppositions, all of your fundamentally held commitments. Okay. Let's get on this neutral ground and let's see where the facts point to us. And then as we interpret the facts one by one, we'll start adding these suppositions in here and there. And then until eventually we get to the end of the race and we've got this whole you know worldview that makes sense. Okay. Um, we reject that. Not only because it's immoral, because Christ says we're either with Christ or we're against Christ. You know, there's no middle ground there. So we reject it on the grounds of immorality, but it's also impossible. When it comes to these grandiose issues, such as the existence of God, 
everyone has an opinion. Everyone starts somewhere. Either you assume God exists or you don't. There's, there's no, well, I don't know God exists, you know, Romans 1. Everyone knows he exists. Mm -hmm. You either start with his existence or you don't. And so that already is enough to just refute the whole notion of neutrality. So neutrality basically says we can all just throw away our beliefs, you know, a tabula rasa, as, as John Locke put it, blink slate, and then we'll take everything in passively as needed, and then we'll form a worldview that way. So we reject that. We already go into the argument assuming our Christian commitments from mm -hmm. the without shame without wavering whatsoever so neutrality is impossible and it's immoral that's that's what i mean you can't just give up your beliefs you know on a whim okay. um, autonomy is the um attempt uh, again i will use attempt the attempt to reason apart from god and and to formulate a cogent worldview that conjures up answers to everything you can't do it um and so to argue autonomously is to argue apart from christ and his word apart from christ's authority and on the scriptures Okay. All right. So uh, I'm I'm happy you mentioned the word attempting because it's impossible, right? If if we live in a God created world, autonomy is is not a thing because by by the very fact that we are created beings, we rely upon Him by necessity for meaning and cogency and things like that. Um, now I hear a lot of uh, sort of objections against the presuppositional method, and one popular thing that I hear is that it's just a claim. So um, I'll, I'll sometimes I'll read. I mean, unfortunately, I don't have time to engage a lot of the comments. You yeah. know, I wish I did. I mean, a lot. Some people ask me questions, and I'll give a short here and there. Um, and I want to get involved, but I just I just don't have the time. <laughs> so so I use this platform to talk about and expand on on various things. But yeah. when I am reading through Facebook comments and things like that, I'll often hear people say, "Oh, well, the presuppositionalist likes to make the assertion." Well, yeah, they typically make that claim. Um, why isn't the transcendental claim of the presuppositionalist, why is it not the case that it's simply a claim? Where's the meat to what we're saying? How does one demonstrate transcendentally what the what the presuppositionalist is saying, that without the Christian uh, God, you couldn't make sense out of anything? Move us beyond just the mere assertion. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that all the time. You're right. This comes up all the time. You know, a Muslim could say the same thing, or a Jew, or a Hindu, or, or whoever. Um, you're just making a claim that the Christian worldview um, is a necessary precondition. You know, God exists. You know, anyone can do that. It's arbitrary. All right, well, how do you um, prove it? Well, no one's naive enough to just formulate an apologetic without an argument. There's an argument there. And right. either the objector doesn't is not aware of that there's an argument there, or he knows there's an argument but thinks it's you know, subpar, he just doesn't understand it at all. Um, the transcendental program, which is what presuppositional apologetics utilizes, is an arguing from the impossibility of the contrary. All right, can I stop you right there? Sure. I want to let people know that is not something that presuppositionalists made up, okay? Yeah. Transcendental arguments are a thing. <laughs> okay. People think like, oh, the presuppositionalists made that up. It, yeah. Transcendental arguments are a thing. You see it in certain, in various forms in Aristotle. You yeah. see it throughout the course of, of um, you know, uh, of the history of philosophy uh, coming more into focus in, in Immanuel Kant. Um, and Van Til is using a transcendental argument, but he's doing it differently than what, what has been, how it's been typically used throughout the course of, of, of um, the history of philosophy. But go ahead, I just wanted to make that point because some people think, you know, we just have our weird, I saw a debate between a presuppositionalist and, and um, an atheist and the presuppositionalists use the term 
concrete universal. You're familiar with this, this language? And yeah. the atheist, who should know better? I mean, he knows philosophy. He, he seems to be very well read. He says, that's not a thing. Presuppositionalists made that up. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> that's totally a thing in philosophy. But at any rate, we want to move beyond that. So, so why don't you unpack for us? Go ahead. Um, yeah, that's a good point. This will get us into the Stroudian objection. You know, anyway, it, this is a good step stool toward it. Uh, transcendental arguments, which is what the presuppositional met method utilizes, is an arguing um, from the impossibility of the contrary. And it argues that certain beliefs or certain um, metaphysical um, things must be the case in order to make sense of an experience or experience as a whole. And so, as you said, Aristotle used this hundreds of years before Christ for the law of non-contradiction. You have to assume it in order to, you know, deny it. And then there's kind of like this dead period. I mean, I believe, and I, I haven't studied on this, but I believe the early church used, had this somewhere in the Orthodox, okay. you know, early church used it, but I'm not sure. But, and then Kant comes along in 1700s and 18th century and he, and he utilizes the same thing. Um, and then it comes back again in the, in the 20th century. So um, for the critic that says, oh, well, you know, the, the anyone can make the claim that God is the necessary precondition for intelligibility or God exists. Um, they need to prove that first of all, because we're not giving a claim, we're giving an argument. And that's the conclusion of the argument. We just haven't given the premises of the argument yet. And so the argument is going to run, is going to go that um, the existence of God is a necessary precondition to make sense of logic, to make sense of uniformity in nature or the world around us, to make sense of human dignity, to make sense of mathematical laws, the causal principle, induction, anything. Uh, the existence of God and the truths of the whole Christian worldview are necessary in order to make sense of that. And if you reject that, you're reduced to absurdity. And not only are you reduced to absurdity, you have to assume the Christian worldview in order to argue against it. And mm -hmm. so, no, presuppositional apologetics is not just to claim that God exists and he's a transcendental and that's that. We win. There's an argument toward it. So would you say that part of the demonstration is the inability of the objector to ground the very things that you're saying he can't ground that's part of it right so what so it's not simply look you can't account for intelligible experience so i win but right. it is but but saying look you can't account for intelligibility and that's part of the argument <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay if that was it then you would just have you, you couldn't answer the objection of, well, what about hypothetical worldviews? Or have you gotten to every single worldview? Because you've only refuted mine. Well, what about my neighbors? Or, you know, so again, yeah, you're right. That's only part of it. It's not the whole apologetic. Sure. And and so the other part of it would actually would be the positive aspect of showing that given the truth of the Christian worldview, we could have those things. And then you lay that out and then answer any objections that comes. Yeah, there's a there's a negative demonstration, which is what I we just went over, critiquing non-Christian worldviews. And then there's a positive which is expositing from scripture, the metaphysical scheme that is the Christian worldview. And so it's not just a negative worldview or a negative um, aspect to it that, cause that would be insufficient. You know, it, it sort of runs into the same problem as Gordon Clark, you know, and he, he was left to probabilism. And the only way to prove God's existence, according to Clark was omniscience. You had to refute every other worldview being able to do that. Um, and so that runs into the Clarkian problem, but, um, yeah, that's simply for Van Til. That's the um, negative uh, aspect of the argument. Refute the non-Christian and then give your positive. So, so, so what, what if somebody says, okay, well, Mr. Christian, you're using your transcendental argument. What if a Muslim uses a transcendental argument? Allah, Allah and the Quran are the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. How, how would you be? I mean, I would admit 
that a Muslim can use a transcendental argument, but he can't do it successfully. <laughs> so so, if, someone, if, so if someone brings the objection, well, a Muslim could use that argument. Yes, anyone could use a transcendental argument. It's whether their worldview actually has the money to pay the bills and actually yeah. account for the things that it, it says only it can account for. Exactly. Right. So, so how would you, how would that look like if, if a Muslim says, well, the necessary precondition for intelligible experience is Allah and the Quran. And if you do not presuppose Allah and the Quran, you couldn't make sense out of anything. How, how would you interact with someone like that? Uh, there are a number of ways that people do. Um, you know, you could do it the way where, you know, if the Bible is true, the Quran is false. The Quran says the Bible is true, therefore the Quran is false. You know, that sort of stuff. It's more theological and, and scriptural. Okay. I center around the more philosophical issues. Allah is not a trinity. He is one God and one person. And so you need a uh, God, a creator, that has made the universe such that we have a one class of things, but a many particulars of things. That solves the problem of the one and the many. So, you know, I see you and I see, okay, you're a human. But what accounts for multiple humans? We have, what, nearly 8 billion people now. Or a water bottle that I have here, or a laptop, or whatever. You have uh, a single, you know, universal that you have for each object, but you can't account either for the universal or for all the particulars that correspond with it. How do you get unity between the one universal and the many um, particular contingent finite objects? And that's where I would go particularly. Admittedly, I haven't read Rush Dooney as much as I should have with uh, the, what is it, Trinity and Vindication of the Christian, something like that. I don't know. Bram Bosterman. That's Bosterman, yeah. yeah. Um, I haven't read that as well as I should have or as much as I should have. But for me personally, I would go after the Trinitarian nature of God and okay. how that leaves a problem. So I have so I have two questions, if I could remember one of them. Okay, so um, so you would appeal to the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Okay, what if the Muslim... Okay, so number one, why is the one and the many an actual problem? I've actually heard people say that's not even a thing. Like, uh, it's not even something spoken about. I've actually had... I won't mention any names because this is a very well-known apologist. He's a good friend of mine, but we used to have a lot of conversations and he said, he said, the problem of the one and the many is not even like a thing. Like no one talks about it, you know, in the philosophical literature, which by the way is incorrect. But even if it were true that no one talked about it, it may be the case that no one talks about it because it's an, it's a problem they can't answer and, but they still need to do philosophy. So, so, so yeah. they, toss it aside, they toss it aside, don't talk about it. And they talk about yeah. other things. Yeah. My first question is, why is the one and the many a problem, number one? And number two, why can't the Muslim say that I could account for unity and diversity in that Allah, who is a unity, is so powerful that he can create other things that are diverse? So that so that they derive from his ability to create many things. And so what's the, what's the problem? I would question uh, the objector's knowledge on metaphysics I, 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 because everyone has a you know different view of metaphysics. So sure. they say about the problem of the one and the many is going to be um, dependent on what they believe metaphysically speaking. Um, so I would ask them on that. The, the For the second question, um, I've, I actually have heard someone say that before. Um, okay. I don't remember where, but um, the problem with that is um, God in Christianity is absolute. He's absolutely one. He's absolutely three persons. And so in the nature of the case and reality, we have an absolute universal, but at the same time, we have absolute particulars. They are, they exist. They're not illusions. They're not some sort of, you know, quasi-physical, you know, entities or whatever. Uh, 
Allah is not uh, many. He's only one, absolutely. But so if he makes a plurality of things, um, they're not going to be absolute either. You have the one absolute, but you don't have the many absolute. So now you have to ask them, well, how does that work exactly? You know, how do I get, how, how do the particulars relate to the one? If the one is absolute, but the many aren't absolute, they're just created after the fact since Allah is all powerful. Mm -hmm. I haven't had, I haven't seen anyone answer that. And I frankly wouldn't know how one would go about answering that. So. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the claim that um, presuppositionalists try to highlight the problems of philosophy so that like, look, here's a philosophical problem that everyone has struggled with. You can't figure it out. So therefore God. So it's almost like we're using kind of a God of the gaps kind of like, well, because there's these unanswered questions, right? Um, you just insert your God. Like, look, our God could answer it. Mm -hmm. how, how would you respond to that? I mean, our these problems in philosophy are problems because the worldviews throughout Western civilization and, and Eastern philosophy can't answer them. Um, is our presuppositionalists just highlighting on people's ignorance and just trying to supplement God in, in kind of a God of the gaps sort of thing? Uh, by no means. And I see how that can be construed that way. It is not a God of the gaps where, okay, we, we're good in some areas autonomously, uh, but in other areas we don't know. So, okay, we'll fill in God there. He's the answer, you know. <clears throat> Um, as I alluded to at the beginning, presuppositional apologetics is a worldview apologetic. We don't start autonomously, get as far as we can, and then say, okay, we got, you know, 70% of everything figured out. So we'll fill in God at the 30% mark, you know, 30% of it. And then, okay, now we're great. We reject that entirely. We would wholeheartedly reject God of the gaps because we start with God at the outset in every facet of experience. Mm -hmm. There is no point at which we argue autonomously apart from God. If you did, then yeah, you would have God of the gaps, but God is everything in our reasoning. Faith is the um, grounding for reasoning. So we don't have any God of the gaps issues there. But again, I could see how that's um, construed that way, but it's, it's not the case. Mm. All right. Well, now here's the thing that people kind of get, they get us in, in like a gotcha moment, right? <laughs> Clear, clearly presupposition. I mean, if I, I heard this so many times, like when I hear it, you know, I just want to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things. Like when someone says it, I'm like, yeah, it gets to that point. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta do one of the Jim Carrey, like the, the dry, he's like, Bleh. yeah. Yeah. Is, when, yeah, is when people say, "Well, the problem with presuppositionalism is that it's circular." Oh no! So there, so there you go, you you dummies. Greg Bonson, PhD in philosophy, Van Til, uh, juggernaut reform thinker. Whether you agree with him or not, I mean, he was a brilliant guy. I mean, are are these men so uh, dumb to overlook the fact that oh? I'm begging the question: <laughs> <laughs> Why is it not a big deal? that presuppositionalists assume what they're trying to prove. And why don't you unpack for us this issue of virtuous circularity versus vicious circularity and why those are not made up categories, but they're actually things that we should consider when we're talking about such foundational issues as one's ultimate presuppositions. Um, I'm trying to find a way to like put this to bed once and for all, but I don't, I, you know, I'm quickly finding out this will probably never go away. So you just got to, Get a, like we a, can save a couple of people. There are people who keep asking it, and then there are other people like, "Oh, okay, I, I see, I see." And yeah, then save a couple, I, right? You snatch them from the flames. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll lay it out in in the way um, everything I've learned from Bonson. So hopefully this will, you know, be as straightforward and direct to the layman. Um, for the entire history of philosophy, we've assumed um, well, we all start neutrally. 
or at least mostly neutral. Because we don't want to beg any questions. We don't want to start at the outset with commitments and then go on to argue for those commitments because that's circular. How do I know the Bible is true? Because it says it's true. There you go. Well, no, you can't do that because it's mm -hmm. circular reasoning. Um, and so people have uh, assumed for all time that we can just start autonomously and neutrally and then we'll go again to the facts in a blank slate and then we'll proposition, proposition, proposition. Okay, now I have a worldview. Uh, and that's what's so revolutionary about Van Til is he says, no, that's not the case at all. Everyone has their ultimate commitments. Mm. Um, and so to the charge of circularity, um, I would point to transcendental reasoning. And the shame in all this is that it's not very well known. It, we have we know deductive reasoning and we know inductive reasoning, um, but we don't really know transcendental reasoning all that well. And so uh, that's what people need to learn. Um, a viciously circular argument, we talked about vicious and virtuous. A viciously circular argument is one in which the premises of the argument already assume the conclusion in advance, which is the very thing in question. That's why it's called begging the question. So, you know, my senses are reliable because they give me reliable results. They give me reliable results because they're reliable. Therefore, my senses are reliable or whatever. The uh, premises already assume the conclusion. You can't do that. A virtuous circle is a, an argument in which the premises necessarily presuppose the uh, truth of the conclusion and arguing for it. And that's the key word is it's necessarily presupposed. It's not just arbitrarily presupposed. If someone said, well, how do I know my senses are you know, valid and I was an atheist? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, because you know, they give me reliable results. Well, that already assumes the conclusion of what I'm trying to prove. And so that, that doesn't work. It's just an arbitrary justification. But in a transcendental argument, in a virtuous circle, the premises have to presuppose the conclusion in order to make sense of the argument at all. Okay. And so to dumb that down and to, you know, make it more down to earth to people, if we, if we um, took the laws of logic, which is, you know, commonly known, Dr. Lyle does this a lot. And someone comes up to me, a skeptic, and he says, well, how do you know that there are laws of logic, the law of non-contradiction, identity, excluded middle? How do you know that there are these laws that we have to adhere to uh, in order to um, argue? All I have to say is, well, you just assume they existed in order to, uh, Put them into question the argument for the laws of logic already has to assume the laws of logic in order to argue for it and of course people say well no 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 that's that's fallacious you you, you can't assume what well, you can't escape it that's the problem there are like no matter how much the critic wants to put it there are circles that you cannot escape i can escape the circle of you know justifying my senses in an autonomous fashion my, my senses are reliable because they give me good results but i can't escape circles such as how do you, I know the laws of logic exist and I'll give you premise by premise to conclusion, but I've already assumed the laws of logic in the premises. You can't escape it. You have to rely on the truth of the conclusion in order to argue for it. That's mm. what we mean by virtuous circularity and okay. transcendental reasoning. And that's why I think people think, uh, you know, circular, circularity is just lumped into this, you know, one bag and it's all fallacious and, you know, there's nothing we can do and presuppositionalism is a joke and la da 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 da. That's just not the case at all. They just, they need to understand transcendental uh, reasoning. Now you could agree, you could disagree with it. You can be like, hey, I think the presuppositionalists are wrong here, but like you have to understand it. It's not like something you'd only presuppositionalists just made up so that they could argue in this weird way. I mean, uh, these, these are actually genuine philosophical categories that have been discussed, you know. Um, all right. I think you did a very good job in uh, explaining those things. You're doing good. We're up on the half hour. And so um, you're still alive. Okay. This is, this is a good thing. <laughs> He's like, check his pulse. I'm still good. All right. Yeah. Um, so, so let's move into, uh, I have one question and perhaps this one question will spill into the main issue that we're going to be discussing, which is the Stroudian objection.
uh, to trend to the transcendental argument. Um, so what, in your view, in your reading and your studies, what has been the most difficult, like genuinely difficult objection that you had to kind of think about against the presuppositional approach? Um, it would be the, the Stroudian objection last year. Um, when I get, you know, wrote the paper on, you know, we confuse ontology and epistemology. Okay. Uh, I think Stroud was still in the back of my mind. I have the paper here, but I think he was in the back of my mind. I didn't really pay much attention to it though. And at the time I thought that was it, but I, I, I think this is the biggest objection. And I think the last one, honestly, I, to go against Van Til's apologetic. Um, and that's why I just, I spent about three weeks. I think this is, I, it took me five drafts um, to get everything down the way I wanted to, because I was responding to Bailey, you know, and unfortunately he can't watch right now, but he, he said he'll watch after. But um, yeah, I think this is the single most um, critical objection to Van Til. And, and if this could not be answered, then we would definitely have a problem. We'd have to alter the apologetic or just, you know, find another one altogether. So I think this is the biggest one. Back to the Kalam. We just go back and the Kalam's just well, there. They, they always come back. <laughs> there's a generic deity up there somewhere, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay. So, so why don't you tell us, oh, by the way, before, before we do that, let me just let, let folks know if you have any questions, put them in the comments. I know I, I, I can't multitask. I'm kind of looking in three little areas. So if there's some craziness going on in the comments, I'm sorry if I can't regulate that to everyone's liking, but if you have any questions that you'd like us to, to take on towards the end of the, of the podcast episode uh, and the, the live stream, um, preface your question with the word question, and I'll try my best to, to get to them, all right? So if you think uh, if something's being said here, you disagree or you need clarification, uh, now's the time to to jot down a question. Also, real quick, I forgot to make mention, I have, um, let me get myself in my iPad here. I wanted to let people know that um, next Tuesday, I will be having Ricky Roldan on for uh, from Urban Reform Podcast, um, and that episode is is called Taking Precept to the Streets. So, if you guys know who Ricky is, um, he's got a really great podcast called the Urban Reform Podcast. So if you like uh, pre-sup, but from a, from a guy you know who who sounds tougher than I do, you know, <laughs> I don't sound very tough. But if you want to if you want to see what pre-sup looks like, like how it would look like in the streets, you know, I could just picture Ricky, you know, wearing his rag, you know, waiting in the corner, waiting in a dark alley, waiting to leap on some atheist somewhere. <laughs> we love you. Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> um so so definitely you guys want to you guys want to listen in on that on that episode that'll be next tuesday at 9 p.m eastern okay also i'm going to be having seth bloomberg on um i don't know if he has any website or anything like that but he's been on the gospel truth and did some debates i thought he did a really good job and thought it would be good to have him on and i'll also be having brian knapp uh from choosing hats on uh in the future i haven't set a date yet and for those who like the Calvinism stuff that we have, um, I'll be having Michael Preciado. Is the, he is the author of A Reformed View of Freedom. So he's he's basically um, a Guillaume Bignon without a French accent. So, so you know they cover kind of the same, <laughs> the same topic. So if you like those topics, uh, you definitely uh, you'd want to check those out when I when I keep folks updated with regards to the dates, all right? But if you have any questions, please uh, take uh, take a, a moment to write a question out and we'll get to it later, all right? Okay, so Joshua Pillows, what is the Stroudian, who is Stroud and what is he objecting to? So in the um, 20th century, there was a uh, resurgence of transcendental arguments following after Kant, you know, about 100, 150 years earlier. 
200 years earlier. Um, and so the arguments would um, argue, again, from the impossibility of the contrary, but also, you know, you have to assume what's in question in order to argue against it. Mm -hmm. So in the 20th century, you had, you know, a lot, not a lot, but, you know, you had a group of philosophers that would argue, utilize transcendental arguments uh, to counter the skeptic in one area. And that's the crucial point. It was only in one area. It wasn't a whole worldview um, sort of uh, argument. And so um, everything was going well and dandy um, until this guy named Stroud comes along. And he um, critiques another philosopher by the name of P.F. Strawson. And Strawson was a, is an atheistic philosopher, was, um, who used transcendental arguments as well to combat the skeptic in um, two or three different areas. And so um, Stroud comes along and, and criticizes Strawson, and he says, you can't make a transcendental argument where the premises are, are in the um, vicinity of your, your experience, and then the conclusion goes to something beyond your experience. Where, you know, Kostrosin would say something like the existence of objects must go on, must, they must continue to exist while we don't perceive them. And so um, Stroud comes along and says, we can't just conclude that that's what's the case in reality. That's only, we only have to assume that conceptually speaking. Well, you know, Strawson, when he made that argument, wasn't arguing ontologically. He wasn't arguing about reality. He was just arguing conceptually. Mm -hmm. So Stroud completely misconstrued Strawson. But in the process, he came up with a, a pretty heavy criticism against transcendental arguments, okay. saying ultimately that any transcendental argument you give can only ever prove at best a conceptual necessity. You have to assume the conclusion conceptually speaking, but that doesn't mean it's the case external to us. And um, is that is that the conceptual like, for example, in the Michael Butler article in Greg Bonson's uh, Feshriff, I think I have the book somewhere. Let me see. Do I have it somewhere? The because I have it too. It's just not in the Feshriff. I don't think I have. It's in the Feshriff. There is an article, a very lengthy article that is written by um, Michael Butler. And um, it's an excellent article, by the way. Great summary of the transcendental argument. But one thing that he leaves hanging at the end is this issue of um, the difference between conceptual necessity versus ontological reality. So what does that mean for folks who have no idea what we're talking about? If we demonstrated successfully that the transcendental argument is solid, right? You need the Christian, you need to presuppose the Christian worldview in order to make sense out of anything. All that would prove is that you need to presuppose the Christian worldview to make sense out of anything. Yep. So you've proven conceptual necessity. I need the Christian worldview, conceptually speaking, to make sense out of anything. Yeah. Okay. Now that's pretty good as far as it goes. If it didn't go anywhere uh, further than that, that's still pretty powerful powerful thing, but that's not what Van Til was trying to do. Van Til was not trying to demonstrate the conceptual necessity only, but the ontological reality. Christianity actually had to be the case in order for anything to make sense. That's and right. so what you're pointing out here is this distinction that if this objection is valid, then all we've proven, although a good, a good start, all we've proven is conceptual necessity, not that it's actually the case. Right. Is that the, uh, the nature of the objection? Yeah, basically. And, and uh, yeah, basically, is in layman's terms, that's how you would put it. I go to an atheist and, and you know, let's say he's philosophically well read uh, and, I, and I give him the transcendental argument. And he says, well, you know, all you've proven is that I have to, in my head, assume God exists and, you know, Christ rose from the dead and all, and all that sort of stuff. But that doesn't mean it's actually the case in the external world outside of me. You mm -hmm. know, for all I know, it's something totally different. So all you've proven as an apologist is that I have to conceptualize it in my head. 
you know, so, so what, what do I have to do, you know, with that? And, and so that's, that's the objection basically. And, and to me, that's quite brutal Yeah, and because that, that's not what Van Til wanted to do. And, and it makes it even look worse because uh, Van Til construed or, or formed his apologetic probably 20 to 20 to 30 years before Stroud even comes into the picture. Mm. And, um, and so now you're thinking, okay, well, did Van Til construe his apologetic, his, his argument, already immune to Stroud or, or was did it succumb to Stroud and now here comes Bonson as his protege and now we got to ad hoc you know after the fact uh, um, modify it to circumvent sure. Stroud and that, so that's like the penultimate question there you know so yeah it, it is a devastating criticism so 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 here we are we have a comment someone says currently I'm on Stroud's team it seems to me like transcendental arguments tell us how things must appear to us now how things actually are not how things actually are we don't know our lenses prescription is accurate. How would we respond then? How would we respond to the, how have you responded in your paper? Um, what was your, your solution to this objection? Uh, well, firstly, it wasn't my solution. This is from my teacher, Dr. Bonson, um, which again, he didn't, I don't see anywhere in his written writings, which is a shame. It was only on the tapes I, I've listened to in his courses, but um the Stroudian challenge fails against Van Til because the Stroudian challenge is only predicated on atheistic autonomous worldviews that start with man as the center of the universe. And then for man, we work out and get all the facts and, and whatnot. Uh, the Christian worldview rejects that entirely. We don't start with man. We start with God. So on the one hand, you have and the atheist who will just take atheist for now, who starts with an egocentric predicament. And, you know, he's got to conjure up all the facts. But on the Christian worldview, you don't start with an egocentric predicament. You start with God and, and you're in connection with God and you're in connection with the external world. That's that's our worldview. Mm -hmm. um, and that's now, real, now, real quick, mm -hmm. Justin, because I could anticipate people saying this. Well, you don't start with God, Joshua. OK, <laughs> you, you, you might start with God from like a metaphysical perspective. Right. But epistemologically, we have to start with ourselves. I mean, don't you know you need your senses, bro, to read the Bible? You know, like, uh, so, so why don't you quickly address that? And then you can continue your line of reasoning there. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know there's going to be people who, who are listening like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm glad you did because that goes to the previous paper as well. Um, I, it irks me when people, when classical apologists say this. You have, you, you can either start with yourself or God, you know. Uh, you, you have to start with yourself. You can't start with God. To which I just sit there and I'm like says who like that's that's a false dichotomy who says we have to either start with man or we have to start with god because sproul has repeatedly said we can't start with man we have to start with or we can't start with god we have to start with self-consciousness with man and then we go to god and where's the argument to say well it's an either or situation you know we reject that entirely we everyone has a priori inescapable innate knowledge of god at the outset it's impossible not to have it in the same way that we would argue it's impossible not to have knowledge of laws of logic. You have to have not laws of logic, knowledge of laws of logic in order to question it or to predicate it all, anything, you know? And so I, 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 again, I irk at that criticism, but on the Christian worldview, anyway, we start with both. We're made in the image of God. And so anything we do uh, consciously, morally speaking, quite literally images our creator. We can't escape it. There's no chronology there in terms of, knowing okay we know ourselves okay now let's look and see if there's a god you know we know innately and so that that's my answer to that is there's so no... so would babies know god yeah that's another issue <laughs> i knew you're gonna go i knew you're gonna go there 
Um, to be honest, uh, let's throw yeah. a bone to, to our inter interlocutors. That's a yeah. difficult question. Um, yeah. I believe all men know God, and I believe yeah. babies know God. The difficulty is in what sense. I don't. Yeah. I don't know how to unpack that. Um, and that's something, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who might have better responses than what I just gave. Um, but I'm not sure as to the, I I'm, I'm confident that all have nature, uh, have knowledge of God in light of the fact that we're image bearers of God, yeah. but it's difficult to explain and work that out. I think that would be something worthy of looking into, uh, in more detail. Yeah. And it, it, it goes over to an issue of internalism and externalism in the debate of justification. Mm -hmm. uh, do babies know things or how do they know things? You know, you know, um, to, for me personally, I don't have a solid answer for that. I'm not sure anyone has a solid answer for that. Sure. Um, I don't think that's, that's a criticism towards the argument. Sure. You know, even if assuming babies don't have knowledge of God and maybe there's a certain age when their brain develops that they do or whatever, um, that doesn't negate the argument automatically. So, right. Uh, yeah, that, that's how I would respond anyway. Real quick, uh, someone's saying, uh, I guess they're coming late to the show. Bonson was a teacher. Joshua would have been one years old. Yeah, we mentioned that. He's his teacher in the sense that he uh, listened to his lectures, took his courses, and he considers him his uh, teacher. Basically, you you are basically someone who took Bonson courses without the ability to raise your hand. <laughs> yeah, and I couldn't ask questions. I had a question. I was kind of you know stuck until it finally clicked one day, but... Uh, yeah, no, uh, if he came late, then um, everything I've learned about presuppositional apologetics, the transcendental method, comes from um, Bonson. Right. You know, supplementary, Lyle and Syed and Bruin came, whatever, but Bonson's been my only teacher. All my notes, handwritten, typed, are from him. So that's right. All right. So, so again, so the, the Stroudian objection. How do you respond to the Stroudian objection? Um, well, in short, in one sentence, it's a non issue. On my worldview, it's not an issue. On the atheistic worldview, it is an issue because on the atheistic worldview, you start on about uh, with man, and you already start with an egocentric picture because man is um, divorced from the external world, and so that's the pervasive problem in philosophy, is you know, and even Kant himself, what you call the father of transcendental um, argumentation, couldn't get beyond it. How do you get from the phenomenological to the noumenal? And you just can't bridge the gap on an atheistic worldview. On a Christian worldview, we start with God. He's created us in his image. He's created the world that we're in contact with. And so ultimately, the Stroudian criticism is a non-issue. So basically what Stroud is, is really critiquing are transcendental arguments that assume autonomy. Yep. Every time. Ah. So it's not it, once you critique tra a transcendental argument, that's not sufficient to say, look, I've tackled Van Til's argument because Van Til's the unique aspect of Van Til's transcendental argument is that he doesn't start with the assumption of autonomy. He right. is starting with um, with God. So he doesn't start with the egocentric predicament, starting from himself and then moving outward. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm, I'm after after studying everything, I, I'm surprised at how little I've seen this answer. You know, and I, I've seen other presuppositionalists answer it, but not in this way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I'm, it just kind of takes me aback because the whole point of presuppositional apologetics is the circularity involved, the inevitable. We start with the Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. And so Stroud um, unwittingly started with his atheistic worldview and making the objection. Well, you know, I have a worldview here and a worldview here. And mm -hmm. yeah, the objection's great over here, but hey, we're over here. So how about you know, come over to this circle and, you know. Ah, he didn't do the internal critique. No, and, and it was never leveled against Van Til. It was always leveled against uh, it was leveled against Strawson and then a secular transcendental argument. So, 
but yeah. but but he didn't he lacked an internal critique because if he would have internally critiqued the Christian worldview, the the, the Christian form of presuppositionalism, he would have ha had to have hypothetically granted the truth of Christianity, which we assert teaches that yeah. we must start with God. So so on the assumption of Christianity, you're already remo removing yourself from the egocentric predicament because yeah. given Christian thought categories, we start with God, not with man. Yeah, and, and even Mike Butler, who was Bonson's protege in his paper, um, he didn't concede Stroud, obviously, but he didn't answer in this way. And Bonson did. That's how I got my answer. And, and Butler was sitting in on the lecture, you know, five years earlier before he published the work. And I'm just reading it. And I'm blown aback. Like, why didn't you answer that way? Everyone yeah. has circles. You know, it's not like we're all neutral here. And and that's one of the criticisms that Bailing in his paper, who and he argued in favor for Stroud, said was, well, Butler's begging the question. The presuppositionalist is begging the question because he's just pausing at God at the outside. He says, okay, Stroud, uh, you're not a problem. I'll wash my hands and be done with it. We can't do that because it's circularity. Of course, Stroud was being just as equally circular in his criticism. He was assuming the non-existence of God and the autonomy of man, where we were assuming at the outset the existence of God and the lack of uh, self-sufficiency of man's reasoning and, and that sort of stuff. So you have two circles. Stroud's definitely affects once. His criticism is valid. It's definitely valid. Kant couldn't escape egocentrism, and his conclusion um, is valid against all secular transcendental arguments. But on Van Til's approach, starting with the Christian worldview, it, it makes no sense. It's not even an issue. He'd have to walk over and get in the Christian worldview and say, well, how do you start with God and man? You know, that sort of critique. But as he put it, it's not an issue. Hmm. And so that's why these, I mean, presuppositionalists were always, were always repeating the terms, no neutrality no autonomy those are central it's not even they're it, you can, they're not even like the the cliche by what standard you know we get made fun of for that by the way asking what standard is a, by what standard is a perfectly valid question i don't I, people have made fun of it so much that now people are afraid to use it it's like that's a perfectly valid uh, question to ask so i Keep yeah. asking it, you know, let, let them make fun of the, the fact that we, we say it. But yeah. um, this issue of autonomy and neutrality is is central. Um, yeah. it is the fact that, well, it's impossible, but the fact that we don't assume those things actually saves our philosophy instead of uh, damages it, right? Yeah, we don't start with autonomy whatsoever. We you know we start with the Christian worldview. If you are a presupposition, see, here's the thing, even with other presuppositionalists, um, who want to concede Strauss' point, like Bailey, for instance. Um, hello, Bailey, when you watch this after. Um, you, there's a tendency, you know, you want to say, yeah, we're, you know, we have to embrace a worldview. We're all circular and, you know, but then when Strauss comes along, you kind of want to abandon that three hands up and say, well, well, this is, you know, this is a valid objection. So let's get outside of the worldview and let's look down on it, you know, and see if Strauss' objection is an issue. And if it's not, then we'll go back into the worldview. You can't do it. And I think that's what the people who can can see to Stroud's argument are, are in error with. You can't escape circularity. They're trying to have a neutral standpoint by which they can answer the objection, answer the objection. Okay, now we're not neutral anymore. You just can't do it. Mm -hmm. so you have to go on this Christian worldview where there is no autonomous reasoning. You don't start with man. You start with God and um, circumvent the issue in that manner. Now, in, in Bonson's lectures on transcendental arguments, I was listening to the last lecture and Bonson was um, answering the objection that the transcendental argument does not prove that Christianity must be the only necessary precondition for, uh, for intelligible experience. And as he was answering it, and I thought Bonson gave a brilliant answer and I was in full agreement with Dr. Bonson. Um, he, he said, he says, Michael, the Mike talking to Michael Butler, which was his, kind of his, 
<laughs> he goes, Michael, now why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? Yeah. <laughs> are, are you laughing because it's too good to be true? <laughs> or are you laughing for some other reason? And and Michael Butler says, I'm laughing because it's it seems too good to be true. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly, exactly right. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Again, which boggles my mind. Why didn't Butler answer in his paper in the same way? He was sitting in yes. on the lecture, you know, and, and then Bonston dies in December of 95. And then um, he, I don't think he published his paper in 02, you know, so seven years later, but yeah. even then, you know, but um, I like that point. I'm glad you brought that up because more philosophically astute atheists will say, okay, well, you know, you've proven that Christianity is a sufficient condition. It can satisfy the preconditions for intelligibility, but that doesn't mean well. It's the only true worldview that you know that doesn't follow at all. Sure. You have to go and refute this worldview, this worldview, and all the hypothetical ones before you're allowed to say Christianity is exclusive. Of course, when they say that, I have them right where I want them, because in the nature of the case, there can only be one true worldview. There can only be one transcendental. You, it, that's like saying Christianity is true, God exists, and Hinduism is true. God doesn't exist and all these millions of other gods exist and that they're both true at the same time. Well, that doesn't make sense at all. You've lost unity. You lost coherence. You've lost any sort of truth whatsoever. If both of these systems are true, there has to be, and there can only be one transcendental. If the Christian worldview satisfies the preconditions for intelligible experience, then by default, it's true. And so I can sort of coerce or trick the atheist into saying, oh, yeah, it's just a sufficient condition. But now I have more where I want them, because now all I have to do is say, well, it, there can only be one. So you've just admitted that the Christian worldview. That's right. If it's sufficient, <laughs> that's necessary, bro. You know, yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, kind of a little sleight of hand there, if you will. But, um, yeah, there can only be one. The Christian worldview um, justifies intelligibility. So you're wrong. And you don't want to put it that way, of course. Sure. The only way they could come back from that is to go on the Christian worldviews on terms and critique it and find an internal consistency or whatever in that way. But if, if they can't, and they really can't, mm -hmm. um, Christianity is true, both um, conceptually and metaphysically external to us. Now, now I, I, I have heard many people, I've laid out the argument. Um, I've convinced many a classicalist, by the way, um, which I'm very happy because once you explain a lot of these things, you get past a lot of the, um, like the common misconceptions and caricatures, a lot of people kind of just like, huh, okay, you've given me something to think about. I remember speaking with, again, very well-known apologist, sharp guy. He was helping me prepare for a debate, okay? And so he was playing the atheist, and I was giving my, my transcendental argument. And you could hear the shift in his voice from when he was the atheist, and then you he, you began to hear him ask his own questions because – I began to ask, answer the questions in a way. I was like, huh, okay, but what about this? And he began to ask his own questions. And at the end of that little interaction where he was almost, his interest was peaked. And he's, this guy's a classicalist. His interest was peaked. He, he's just like, it just sounds too easy. It sounds too good to be true. Uh, and, and many things that sound too good to be true usually are, except the transcendental arguments. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Like, well, but what if, what if someone posits a deist God? Or was someone, and he kept on giving, you know, and there are answers for that. I mean, not every presuppositionalist answers it the best way that they can, but there are these kind of gotcha moments like, well, what about this? There are answers to that. And usually some of these objections come from, come from a complete misunderstanding of what we're actually arguing. Yeah. Well, so, so here's a question that I hear a lot of people um, ask, where's the argument itself? Let's, let's see its premises. Let's follow, you know, the line of, um, of thinking, you know, 
can the transcendental argument or is the transcendental argument, at least as uh, Bonson presented it, um, is it is it ever laid out in some kind of logical form uh, that one could follow, you know, like uh, the P's imply Q's and the if thens and the, you know, those sorts of things that some of the more rigorous, uh, rigorous guys are looking for so that they could examine each point and, uh, you know, critique it in a way that they feel is satisfying. Yeah. Um, this was an issue brought up by Gordon Clark again with Van Til back probably in the 50s. And um, he says, well, Van Til nowhere lays out his argument. Where are the premises of the argument? Um, there, well, there are two responses to that. Um, the first is that um, presuppositionalism is a comparison of worldviews. It does not argue inductively. It does not argue deductively. It argues by a comparison of worldviews. Which one can make sense of intelligibility? Which one can't? Um, and so that's a good reason why you never see it laid out formally speaking. Okay. But second, there is a formal form to or a formal form to it. Okay. Um, it's a syllogism. So the first premise would be that in order for P to be the case, Q would be the case. Q has to be the case since Q is a necessary precondition for P. Uh, and then premise two is P is the case. And then the conclusion is therefore Q is the case. And okay. so that would be the syllogism. And, and even in Bonson's writings, I, I haven't seen it laid out that way. And he never gave it in that transcendental argument seminar. Actually, it was Butler who gave the, um, that syllogism. But um, but that's how the transcendental method would go, not only for Van Til, but for any transcendental argument in, in general, any secular, you know, Wittgenstein or Strawson or Stroud or, or whoever gives the uh, transcendental argument. That's the generic form, if you will. There's one form to the argument, but as you know, there are many arguments in terms of content, argument from the uniformity in nature, validity of sense perception, the possibility of knowledge, all that sort of stuff. But the syllogism I gave you um, would be the, the form of the argument. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground, man. I think it, it'd be a good time to go to some of the questions. There are some questions, some nice comments as well. Um, real, real quick, if you uh, have a question, it's not too late. I'll, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling good right now. I don't know about you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have time, so um, it, I love the Q and A uh, Q and A aspect. Also, if um, if I hear a lot of people, and it's in the comments too, uh, people say this is such an underrated ch uh, channel. Um, then, share, then share it. I have to. I, I admit, I, I agree. If I wasn't doing this channel and I was watching this channel, I'd be like, "Hey, this is some pretty good content here." So if you find the content super helpful. Do me a solid and share it. Subscribe. Yeah. Tell others to subscribe. Um, it gets the conversation going, and hopefully these kinds of discussions will help clear some of the differences between the different methodologies. And even if people disagree at the end of the day, we could have more fruitful conversations because a lot of these things are being uh, laid out. So uh, subscribe. Uh, check out the website, Revealed Apologetics. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of moving, and so when I move, I'm in New York. I'm going to be moving to North Carolina. When I move... Um, I'm going to have a lot more time to write. So if, if folks check out my website and there's only like two blog articles there, more is coming. Uh, we're just in a period of transition, but definitely share the content um, and, um, you know, send in questions, topics you'd want me to cover. I'm going to try to do um, a little bit more of some spiritual formation sort of stuff too. Um, I don't just do the YouTube channel. There are some podcast episodes that are not done on YouTube. So I'm going to be doing how to study the Bible. Um, and uh, maybe a little bit more on transcendental arguments, kind of do some practical stuff as well, um, because I think this is very important, um, is that when we're doing apologetics, we can't be imbalanced. 
All right. When we're talking about philosophy and theology, we always have to remember the importance that all of this has to be rooted in scripture. Okay. Um, we use philosophical terminology, but I, I would guarantee that Joshua and myself, we can take these issues of transcendentals and show you in scripture where uh, that is a principle that is derived from the text of scripture itself. Um, so, so being biblically based, I think is so vitally important and biblically balanced. You know, sometimes we need to put away the apologetics books. We need to put away, you know, whatever we're reading and dive in the scriptures. I don't remember who said it. It was a really cool quote. They said, um, visit many books, but live in the scriptures. Spurgeon. I, I, I'm sorry. Spurgeon. Spurgeon. Yes. And that, that quote really, really struck me because as I've said in the past, we can be so consumed because we love apologetics. We love theology and they're important. Um, we can be so much into those books that we don't actually stay in the scriptures and soak ourselves in the word of God and allow it to transform our lives because our lives are not just apologetics. We are fully orbed people and we're to, we're to apply these truths to all areas of life, not just when we're debating and arguing with the atheist or the Jehovah's witness or whoever. So very, very important. All right. Well, let me go all the way to the top here. And this is the awkward moment where I uh, scroll down. Uh, Slam RN asked, did Joshua talk about his organ playing? <laughs> did you mention you play the organ? I saw that. Um, <laughs> I probably thought like, oh, Josh, we probably like in some band somewhere. I don't think we mentioned like, well, I actually play the organ. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I should clarify. So I, I'm a classical musician. I, I don't, I don't even listen to contemporary music. Wait, you're not a presuppositional musician? <laughs> like uh, music. Come on, man. I thought you were Okay, that was good. That was good. I'll guarantee you that. I, listen, man. <laughs> um, classically trained. Okay. I, I can't get around the joke, but whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm a classical musician. You know, my parents raised me in music even from when I was in the womb of my mother. I was just okay. listening to classical music on the way to church every Sunday or Wednesday or whatever. Uh, and then I took piano when I was five and then um, trombone in school. And then I started composing after that. Now I do organ. So um, I'm currently, uh, I go to a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod, and I uh, play the organ there, but I compose as well on the side for organ or piano or choir or whatever. So uh, yeah, I played, I played piano. I played organ for about six years now. So All right. yeah, organ. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Maximilian Albrecht, that's a really cool name, says, this is what I need. I'm just learning about this and I really don't like the evidential. <laughs> <laughs> Even watching those guys, bro uh, those guys, brothers bothers me because sometimes they make it seem like possibly we could be wrong as Christians. Thanks for the video. Well, thank you so much, Maximilian. Uh, yeah, that bothers me too. Um, but what are you going to do? The best you can do is keep speaking the truth, be as biblical as possible, and, and hopefully uh, people come around. That said, God still uses those who use the evidential approach. As Bonson was apt to say, God can strike a blow with a crooked stick. And if you think about it, we're all crooked sticks in some way or another. So um, that's important to keep in mind. All right. Let's see here. Let me see here. Slam RN said, I think they said somewhere. Okay. What'd she say? I cried when Bonson died. It was so sad. I, I just want to make a note on that because, again, I was six months old when he passed. Sure. When I listened to his memorial service, I bawled. Like, yeah. 
Because after I grew a relationship with him, I'd listen to his lectures for a year or two. You know, like you know him. Yeah, in my heart, you know, I, I like I know he's in my room with all in my ears all the time. I'm listening to him, you know, and I'm I'm hearing just oh my gosh, I, I don't remember the last time I cried that hard. I, it's on my computer, and I just refuse to ever listen to it ever again. I just <laughs> I can't. The pain is so much, and I he, just. Can't. He went out like a thug, though. He preached his own sir, his own funeral sermon. <laughs> I mean, the, come on, you. Can, someone should have the video clip of Bonson preaching his final sermon, which was so appropriate, given that a week or two later he passed, yeah. and he got the little thug life glasses pop in, you know, <laughs> because it was just so, such a picture perfect, you know. But but you know, when you when you keep when you take the time to listen to him, just to really listen to him, and just. He was such a gifted teacher, even if you disagree with him. He yeah. just had a way of making simple, very complex ideas. And uh, he definitely was a gift to the church that um, unfortunately um, is, is no longer with us. So, And it's cool to talk to someone like yourself who started in 2017. Uh, Bonson died in 1995. I mean, he's still making waves, especially amongst a, among young, young apologists. Um, so I, I think he would be very happy with how God has used what he's laid down as a foundation as to how God's using it today. I certainly hope so. You know, it, he had so many hardships in his life, you know, and his college got shut down and, and his wife left him. And, and but he stayed faithful, you know, the whole time. And, and he's impacting the world now in ways that only God could have done in his providence. If there were not these tapes, you know, in these series of lectures, I would have no clue. I wouldn't know how to defend the method. I wouldn't know how to answer Stroud. Um, and so I just, I, you know, I owe Bonson basically everything I've learned, you know, and I give glory to God, of course, for providentially guiding that. But, um, yeah, he, he had a way to yeah. dumb down philosophy. That's how, you know, someone knows something. If they can explain it to a five-year-old, they've got it in, in their yeah, head. The toothpaste, the toothpaste proof for God's existence. I mean, they don't <laughs> get the template in it's just like flexing at that point. Well, he woke up that morning for the debate and like, yeah, toothpaste. We'll just argue from toothpaste today. And then, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, Philip Guzman says you can use transcendental arguments until you have to identify and define who and what the ultimate and absolute is. Well, that's, that's wrong on its face, but why don't you unpack why that's wrong? Unless you agree with them. <laughs> um, it seems to be assuming that we're trying to argue for some ambiguous notion of God. It, it's it's almost it's almost missing the very point that we're starting with the God we know. We he's he's identified at the very start. But I mean, from a secular point of view, um, you could. I mean, but even then, when you and whenever you give a transcendental argument, you're already assuming, even if it's temporarily, that you're the ultimate. You're assuming your own authority and your own reasoning. That's where we, that's when we get back to autonomous self-sufficiency and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I'm not entirely sure. You have to identify and define who and what the ultimate and absolute is. Um, oh, but in terms of a, a Christian approach, um, no, you don't, because, because we start. Yeah, you, you start with God and his revelation. He defines who he is at the outset. God, we would know who God is if we didn't even have an argument for the existence of God. That That's how being made in his image works, basically. So um, it's not like, you know, we can use a transcendental argument all, all the way to a certain point. Well, now we got to define who God is and what the absolute order of the universe. Well, that's just not the case at all. Right. We start with God because we're made in his image, as we alluded to earlier. Right. Very good. Um, I'm not sure if this is a rhetorical question or a question for you, but how can a Muslim know he's not being deceived by Allah that he's the precondition of intelligibility? Is there some notion? I mean, I'm not a Muslim scholar. 
Um, but is there a notion within Islam that that it is possible for Allah to deceive people? Yes, um, and there's a, I don't have the verse off the top of my head, but it says something to the effect that Allah is so transcendent, he, he, he can't be known truly speaking or something like that. Uh, so whereas in Christianity, God is transcendent, he's also imminent. You know, he, he literally walked the earth for 33 years of his life, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Allah is not like that. He's not triune and he's far above his creation. You know, who can know him? Um, and so the the issue of deception, I think, is very valid against Islam uh, or a Muslim worldview. Mm. All right. Let me just scroll on down. Okay, this is a good question here. So Maximilian strikes again. He asks, as someone brand new into this, where should I start or maybe what to read? Keep in mind, <laughs> this is, he's literally describing me. Keep in mind, I have three children and I run a business. So a lot of my time is allotted to them. So basically, how do I do apologetics when I have three kids and have no time to read or listen to anything? <laughs> uh, yeah, and <laughs> we literally have this, phone call last week uh yeah. for me and after you give your answer i have three kids so i'll be more than happy to tell them how i do it but go ahead um yeah I, i'm i'm a young man i i'm not in a relationship or anything i don't have any kids so fortunately i have that blessing i guess uh, i have the luxury of studying whenever i want to um uh but on that note, I went through different methods of how, well, how do you study, you know, what's the most effective way? And I went through, okay, well, let's handwrite because that's better. And maybe there's something to it, but then that didn't work. I bought a whiteboard, you know, not too big. And I would literally like draw the concepts and define all the words and verbally audibly explain it like I was in front of a class. Because if you can explain it, you know, that's good too. Well, it works too. But what I found is, and you, we talked about this, you just listen to the tapes of Bonson or whoever over and over and over and over again you're going to read a book and i guarantee you, you won't get everything in that book the first time you read it a second time you're still not going to get everything in that book you got to read it over and over and over again um and so every time i'm in the car i used to listen to music i don't really do that anymore i, I listen to bonson um if there's a subject that i know i'm weak in i would purposely go to that specific tape and listen to it over and over and over again and i speed it up 30 25 i think so it's not as long mm -hmm. um but while I'm driving, that's when I take it all in. And and Maximilian's like, that sounds great, but where do I go to find Bonson's lectures? Well, guess what? The Lord has smiled upon you. Because just recently, uh, the all of the lectures of Dr. Bonson that were available on Covenant Media have been bought out by the folks who are running the Bonson Project. Okay. And they have now made all of Bonson's lectures free, available on Sermon Audio. Go on Sermon Audio. Type in Bonson Project and have a field day. There are countless of hours and hours and hours of not only his apologetics material, but his theological material and his exposition through books of the Bible. So there is so much there. I'd have to say that the primary way that I've learned of Bonson and even the stuff when you guys, if you've listened to my debates and things like that, and you're wondering, where did this guy learn all this stuff? I learned primarily through listening to lectures as well. Okay. The cool thing is, um, in order to read a book, you need to sit down and it is impossible to sit down and concentrate on a book when you have three children running all over the place. Okay. Um, so when you say, how should I get started? I'm telling you from a person who has three kids, how bad do you want to learn it? If you want to learn it bad enough, you will stay up late or get up early. It is as simple as that. Okay? 
pick which one works best for you. And you take that a lot of time and you listen to lectures, get a notebook, start yeah. writing it down. This stuff, whether you choose to read or to, or to listen, it needs to be a part of your thinking, yeah. right? Biblical apologetics, just like the Bible itself, needs to be the background music of your thinking. And that only comes through repetition, repetition, and application. Find, find opportunities to use what you're learning. Okay. So, um, listening to things while you're driving, um, while you're cleaning, yeah. when the kids take a nap, phones, whatever, you know, even mowing the lawn. I didn't yeah. have most canceling headphones in and just listen. And, and another thing with tapes is it's not a book. You know, books are so formal. Yeah. You know? Uh, when you're listening to these tapes, these Bonson tapes, you're either going to be listening to a seminar or a single lecture or an entire course. When you listen to tapes, it's so much more pragmatic because he's having to explain it to an audience. It's not some generic, you know, I'm going to publish this book and it'll go out to everyone. Books are great, you know, but there's a pragmatic aspect to it where he will stop what he's doing and explain a, a difficult concept here or there or whatever. And he'll even take Q&A. Yeah. You know, it's hard to hear because, you know, 90s, 80s quality right. But, but it's but it's still pretty good. I mean, yeah. it's not it's not you know unbearable. Uh, and, and also the value of listening to him speak is that you learn how to say what he's saying. Not yeah. that you're parroting him. Obviously, you want to understand the concepts. But yeah. I think it's more practical to learn how something is said in conversation than yeah. simply reading it off a page. Yeah, and um, again, like I said at the beginning, I want to be a um, uh, an example. For someone I, I've solely studied under, studied under Bonson and his tapes, and and that's this is the outcome of it after just four years, you know. And so I want to be an example. It's doable. Of course, I don't have three kids and a family or anything, but I find the time to listen to tapes all the time. He's an organ player. If an organ player could be a presuppositionalist, so can a father of three. <laughs> and I, I practice for anywhere between two to four hours of my day is just practicing at the organ. I get a headache, and I don't even. Well, he's listening to Bonson. He. <laughs> <laughs> that's how good he is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That'd be so, impressive, actually. That would my be cousin, uh, just, uh, my cousin just botched Bonson's name, but um, <laughs> sorry, Laura. <laughs> All right. So Philip has another question. Maybe you can answer it. Maybe you can. It's kind of an abstract one, but how do uh, Herman Duyavier's 15 modal aspects of reality fit into TAs? If you're not familiar with that, we can move on, but maybe you are. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. It's it's not uh, I'm not really well versed in it. Boston touches over Doyavert's aspects. It, it's more of a um, um, it's more like an abstract philosophy. Uh, there are these 15 different modes of how we view things and um, how it relates to transcendental argumentation. I'm not sure. Doyavert had his own criticisms of Van Til, namely that it was he called it a quote transcendent apologetic. Hmm. Uh, that he well Van Til started with the Bible, you know, at the outset. Well, that's not right. We can't do that. Uh, but in terms of his modal aspects, I couldn't really tell you how that fits into transcendental argumentation. Okay, fair enough. Uh, John Myers asks, in Romans one twenty five, does the phrase exchange the truth of God for a lie mean that the unbeliever loses his knowledge of God so that they no longer know him after exchanging it for a lie? Um, they, lo uh, they lose their knowledge of God if there was any knowledge in terms of saving grace, but no, in terms of the existence of their own creator, it's eradicable. You cannot just lose knowledge of the almighty. He is, he's indelibly engraved in our hearts. We're made in his image. You can't get out of that image at all. So anything we do 
uh, we're faced with that. As Vansell put it, you know, a ball in a, in a pool. And he pushed the ball under the pool, and the unbeliever's sitting on it, puts his hands up, says, I don't have a ball, where's the ball? But what's he doing? He's sitting on it. He's actively suppressing that truth. Um, and so, no, it's impossible to lose any sort of knowledge of the Almighty. Otherwise, you have where's the accountability for your sin or anything like that? Where's the moral law in your heart? Um, so, no, you can't lose that knowledge. That, that's not what that verse means. Hmm. Very good. Uh, FTB asks, is there a correspondence theory of truth in Christianity? If, for example, it is whatever corresponds to the mind of God, are we able to, I guess he kind of messed up there, are we able to truth apart from direct revelation of God? Are we able to have truth apart from direct revelation of God? No. Uh, because if truth is whatever corresponds to the mind of God, then you can't have truth if there's no mind of God involved in, you know, the correspondence transaction. Van Til, um, you know, called it a correspondence theory, but also a coherence theory, because there has to be full coherence uh, with our thoughts and God's thoughts. Um, but whatever, if, for example, whatever corresponds to the mind of God, are we able to have truth apart from direct revelation? No, because direct revelation is um, inescapable. You can't have it. You, there's no way you can have knowledge apart from direct revelation. You can't even posit the hypothetical. Well, if God didn't exist, well, that already assumes he exists. So I can't even give you a hypothetical where there is no God and there is no direct revelation. Okay, very good. Let's see here. Boom, boom, boom. Um, whoop, whoops, whoops. Okay, I'm clicking through windows here. Okay. Um, have you, let me see here. Have you ever read the conversation between Ballant and Stevens on the Stroud critique. Um, again, I, I don't know how you pronounce his name. There's a there's a little <laughs> above it. I think it's Balant. Okay. I think he's Hungarian. I don't remember. But anyway, um, I have not read that. But my 44-page um, or 45-page paper that responds to the Stroudian objection is centered around Balant's paper in which he sides with Stroud. So I haven't read the correspondence between Balant and Stevens, but I have read Balant's uh, entire objection against Van Til against uh, the Stroudian challenge. And that's where I um, respond in my paper to how his uh, um, criticism doesn't apply to Van Til and all that sort of stuff like that. So, okay. Um, Ricky Roldan of urban reform podcast says good stuff brothers with some firecracker <laughs> emojis. <laughs> man. Hey, that's good. I'll, I'll, I'll take it, man. I'll take it. Uh, Freddie Carrion says such an underrated channel. What you going to do about it then? Make it, make it over. I just looked. I just looked. Right now we have one thousand nine hundred and nine hundred and something subscribers. So we're almost at two thousand. Maybe we'll do a, a celebration or something if we hit two thousand. Um, for those who have subscribed and shared and done, and done all those other things and supported financially, I um, am very grateful for that. I definitely enjoy um, those who support and those who interact in the comments. So thank you very much. Um, let's see here. We're moving along. Hi, how are you doing? You okay? I'm totally fine. Okay. Uh, Chris says you should have wore a bow tie. Chris, so for those of you that don't know, I, I would wear like Victorian clothing. Like that, I'd have a, a, a trench coat and an ascot and a vest and a shirt and all that sort of stuff. It's just like how I, I, I felt comfortable in, you know, and then a day came and I got too lazy and I'm like, yeah, whatever, I don't care anymore. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Eli's show, I don't need to dress <laughs> nice. <laughs> I should have, but uh, no, Chris knows me. We've gone back a few years. I haven't spoken to him in a while, but thank you, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, we have, uh, oh, wait, wait, no, no, here we go. We'll get to that one here. So Laura asks, would Bonson, <laughs> that's pronounced, there it is. trying to be super nice. It is B-A-H-N-S-E-N, -E but that's okay. 
Would Bonson be a good starting point if you are extremely new to apologetics or is there somewhere I could learn the basics? I'd like to answer this question um, because uh, folks might be interested to know that I just purchased a book um, entitled Every Believer Confident by Mark Farnham. Okay, I'm going to spell that for you so that you can write it down. Okay, it is oh, 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 oh. every believer confident. It looks like this. Let me see if I can get in the camera. It, oh, I don't know if you could see it. It's pretty ghetto. See how we do things here on Revealed Apologetics? Okay, every believer confident. It's like five bucks. And the author I have just reached out to, and he is willing to come on my show sometime in May. So I have to respond to that email and set a date and hopefully we can get them on every believer confident is literally a super duper introductory like kids level like what's presuppositional apologetics i have no clue like it comes at it from a very basic level and i think that's an excellent place to start um but bonson is also good to start as well always ready is always a good one. He uses a lot of scripture there, so it's not terribly difficult to follow. But if you're looking for super duper elementary starting point, every believer confident um, is definitely a good place to start. Did uh, you have any other suggestions, Josh? Uh, yeah. Bon, um, I think it's back in print. Um, I think Slam said it in chat. Pushing the Antithesis is another posthumous publication by Bonson. That's even more basic. Um, in my edition has a, a glossary in the back. It has Q and a at the end of every chapter and has answers to those. That's the most don't be fooled. Pushing the antithesis sounds complicated. It's actually, it's, it's actually uh, high schoolers. Yeah. So. It, yeah. I have, and you can get the video lectures where it's, it's, um, you know, based off of, but pushing the antithesis by Bonson is by far the easiest. It's easier than always ready. And it's certainly <laughs> easier than his other, uh, two or three books out there. But, um, yeah. So pushing the antithesis by Bonson would be my starting. If you went with Bonson. All right. Very good. Um, Maximilian says, oh, no, wait, 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 wait. Okay. Nope. I was the wrong one. Here we go. Uh, is determinism necessary? I suppose if I can guess where they're asking, since the context is presuppositional apologetics, we understand that Cornelius Van Til was purposely trying to construct a reformed apologetic. And so when we say reformed, that is usually associated with some form of determinism compatibilism, whatever. Um, is that a necessary feature of the presuppositional method? If so, why? Yeah, well, if if um, we have indeterminism, then we have a problem, don't we? Because, you know, the universe could be totally chaotic, you know, at any given point, if God's not determining all things. Now, and again, it would depend on um, the extent of the determinism that's being asked. You know, if we get into compatibilism, um, you know, God predestined the pizza I ordered, you know, you know, things as mundane and trivial as that, uh, yeah, that's another debate. But in terms of the overall worldview apologetic, um, there has to be determinism. Otherwise, we lose justification for the uniformity in nature, the inductive principle, the causal principle, and all that sort of stuff. So it is necessary in the broad sense, for sure. Yes. Right. And if someone says, but you were determined to say that, then watch my four-hour double video with Guillaume Bignon, who answers all of those questions, both philosophically and biblically. So we won't get into that. That's another can of worms there. Uh, okay. Uh, Proverbs 1.7 says, great discussion, guys. Keep the videos coming. Why don't you give me a thumbs up if you guys would like to see uh, Joshua Pillows back on in the future? I think you did an excellent job today. And 
when I have big names on, I usually have 30, 40 to 50 people watching at once. And we've gotten as high as uh, 30 something while you were on. So people are really enjoying your conversation. Uh, and so I think you did an excellent job today. So keep it up. And I'd, I'd love to have you back on in the future as well. Thank you. But relax. We're not done yet. We're almost done. <laughs> Okay, so uh, Supreme Leader Kim, that's a pretty intense. That's a pretty intense. Wow. Supreme Leader Kim asks, "How do we respond to atheists who ask, you got your worldview from the Bible? How do you trust your senses to read the Bible?'" Uh, to that, I would respond that they weren't listening. Uh, that's <laughs> bad, but come on, man, you have to be nicer. We get a bad rap for you. Sorry. Man. sorry. <laughs> uh, um. We need to reiterate the point. We're not starting neutrally. We're not starting autonomously. It's not like, well, we got to justify our senses. Okay, now we can go to hop over to the Christian worldview and get into this circle here. We start with a Christian worldview. We start with God and knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves made in the image of God. Um, and so it's not like we have to formulate some abstract argument to justify our senses a priori or before we even get to an apologetic. Our senses are justified uh, in nature of who we are. You know, and secular man has that problem for sure. It's been for thousands of years. No one's had an answer to it. You know, it either ends in um, infinite regress, vicious circularity or um, um, skepticism. So, you know, but yeah, we start with Christian worldview and that's how our senses are justified. If you want to say, oh, well, you're arguing circularly, that's begging the question. Well, you're doing the exact same thing, just mm. our Christianity. So, okay, very good. And we have two more questions. Unless one magically pops up. That happens sometimes. All right. When interpreting a passage of the Bible, how can I know that my interpretation corresponds to the mind of God? And how do we determine between two brothers giving a different interpretation? Um, this was an issue I was really struggling with. I, I think we talked about this last year. You know, Protestantism comes along and now we have five trillion denominations and everyone has their own interpretation. Five trillion's a little much, Josh. <laughs> Don't give, don't give the Catholics too much. This is a Protestant channel, right? He Sorry. just gave five trillion. Not <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, well, we have all these denominations, and and you know, this comes from sola scriptura, and you put the Bible as the ultimate authority. Um, well, now we got to interpret that. Now we have all these uh, divisions. Well, how, what do you do with that? Um, it's really important to note that uh, not everything is essential to salvation. If every minute doctrine was essential to salvation we'd all be lost you know no one has everything right there are essentials and then there are non-essentials non-essentials like eschatology and uh, probably baptismal methods and, and stuff like that but even then that would depend on who you ask um we can know if god saves a, a person they know the um, fundamentals if you will um, we don't have full assurance of the non-essentials we do our exegesis, as it says, the um, I don't remember the verse in Acts, when they studied the scriptures daily to see if the things came to pass. But um, we study the scriptures, and just because, oh, we're fallible, I guess we can't know anything for certain, you know, we should just not do exegesis or, or theology or anything. That's, that's not the case at all. Uh, but the main point is we have the essentials that are necessary for salvation. Uh, Non-essentials, not so much. But then again, as I told you, Eli, there's a difference between proving something with absolute certainty and knowing something with absolute certainty. So you can know a doctrine, um, perhaps hypothetically, that's not essential. You just wouldn't have a, an, uh, an argument that would uh, prove absolutely as well. So we have to delineate between proof and knowledge and persuasion and stuff like that. So, um, 
Yeah, it, the the way we know the doctrines which correspond to the mind of God are those that are necessary for salvation. Mm. And also FTB, I don't know what that's short for, so I apologize. Um, the existence of competing interpretations does not negate the reality and possibility of having the correct interpretation. Yeah. Right? So the existence of, of competing interpretations does not mean it's impossible to ascertain the correct one. Okay, so if I were to give a math test to a class and my students gave different answers to two plus two, and then I look and I say, well, you know, Johnny says two plus two is is four, and Steven says two plus two is is nine, and Stephanie says two plus two is twenty-three. Well, look at all these answers. I guess I guess I can't know which one's correct. Well, that that's ridiculous, right? Yeah. God has spoken to us with clarity in human language. And because God has chosen to communicate to us in human language, human language is sufficient for that communication. Now, with with respect to areas of disagreement, I would agree with Joshua here that with respect to the essentials, I think they are clear. We can know that they are true, the essentials, and we could argue given the language that God uses and reveals to us in Scripture. However, even the Bible itself gives us precedent for disagreement, especially with respect to the uh, specifically with respect to the non-essentials, where in the end of, of Romans, Paul says with respect to, you know, one person um, seeing one day as holy and another one keeping another day as holy says, let every man be convinced in his own mind. So the Bible even gives us some leeway for disagreement, but not with respect to essentials. Essentials can be known, they can be demonstrated, and it doesn't matter if there's a million different interpretations, the wrong ones are wrong, the right ones are right, and we can know that we're right with respect to the um uh, to those um, essential features of the Christian faith. Yeah. All right. Hope that makes sense. All right. Uh, some people saying this was really fun. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. Slam RN says, if you like the content, subscribe. Yes, I'd highly appreciate that. I, this is my favorite. This is my favorite thing. I'm going to put this on the screen. Okay. All right. This is awesome. <laughs> I don't want your head. I don't want your head to get big, Joshua, but this, this is cool, man. All right. They call him pillows because he puts his debate opponents to sleep. <laughs> Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> That's good. You put it, you knock him dead, bro. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Someone's asking a question about Darth Dawkins, who's very well known on Discord. Are you familiar with Darth Dawkins? Yeah. Um, I, I actually recently started a, an apologetics page on TikTok and Man, it's like a cesspool on there. But um, yeah. I, on some of my videos, they would just say like, okay, Darth Dawkins want to be, you know, and I, I don't respond. I know who he is. Apparently, from what I've heard anyway, I think you had him on recently. But like from what I've heard, he's not, I mean, he's not very loving. From mm -hmm. and I could be totally wrong, but um, I, I've never met him. I don't know what he looks like. I don't know anything about his background, but um, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, someone's asking, uh, Chris is asking, who's your go-to living apologist today besides Eli? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, well, I mean, I already answered that, I guess. <laughs> oh, oh, of today, a living. Um, All the dead ones are the best. <laughs> That's right. My favorite living presuppositionalist is a dead presuppositionalist. He lives in my heart. Sorry, Dr. White. I mean, you know, but... I mean, Bonson was a genius, and I know I have prejudices against him, but he, he was so articulate. I mean, you couldn't debate him. He would just slice and dice you. Um, today, I, it would depend. If you want a down-to-earth, on-the-street sort of apologist, it would be Psy. If it would be more scholarly, it would be 
white or oliphant, you know, or, you know, um, J uh, Jeff Durbin's on the streets too, you know? So I, 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 again, I don't listen to modern apologists today, not because they, I think they suck or anything like that, but I just, I'm, I'm still learning from Bonson right now. I'm not done, but um, I don't have any go-to at the moment. Okay. All right. Very good. Um, is there anything we can do if atheists or pragmatists say, my worldview is irrational, but I don't care because it works for me. Um, I say, okay. Like, and this was a, this was a pervasive problem. And Bonson brought this up repeatedly in, in the transcendental arguments course. We have nothing to say to those skeptics or atheists who just say, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to talk to you at all. You know, okay, fine. If you're not going to get on the court as, as Bonson put it, you know, to play the game of the game of apologetics, then, you know, what are you doing? Why are you talking to me? You know, either get on the court and let's debate or get off the court and, and just say, that's that. And I don't want to be rational. You know? So if someone doesn't want to be rational, that's their problem. You know, we don't have the power in ourselves to convince people to be Christians that that prerogative lives with God alone. Um, but apologetics is interested in, in rationality and discussion. So if someone says, I don't want to discuss and say, okay, too bad. Imagine <laughs> that as an objection. Oh, well, well take this pre-supper. What if I want to be irrational? The pre-supper just says, Okay. <laughs> okay. Bonson often said, "Speak into the mic. Let everyone know that to reject Christianity, you have to be irrational." Yeah, like that's like that's like me not having like being a Christian. I don't have an argument. And atheist says, "Well, you know, how? Why do you believe if you don't have an argument?" Well, la da da da. You know, I don't want to listen to you. It's irrational. There's no argument there. So, all right. Well, we have survived. We went one hour and thirty-two minutes. I bet you it felt like only ten minutes. Right? It goes quickly. I told you. It does because <laughs> this is my first time. I, I like you said. I've written all these articles and essays and engaged in Facebook groups, but I've never been um, live. This is my first public appearance, and so I've never. I didn't know how, what I stutter, what I just go blank and look like a doofus. You know, I, I didn't know what would happen, but of course, as you said, I was totally fine. So, <laughs> yeah, when you know the topic, it's fine. You know, we have a conversation, and you know, you and I are very passionate about this topic. We we are both students of, of Bonson, um, and we're talking about a topic that we've learned so much from him. So I, I didn't doubt one bit that you would do an excellent job, and I'm sure folks wouldn't mind um, seeing you on again, and maybe perhaps we'll cover. Um, you wrote a, a, a paper on the ontology epistemology issue. Maybe we can, we can focus an entire episode on that, um, and deal with RC Sproul's, uh, objections, Jacob Brunton's and Cody Leibolt's, uh, objections. That's just one of the things that, again, it irks me because they get corrected on it. Um, but it just, they keep repeating it and yeah. you know, I, I mean, I'll be more than happy to, you know, with, sure. uh, I'll have to reread my S my own work because I need to freshen up on it. Um, but uh, I remember yeah. reading it and I thought you did a fantastic job exactly. and you were very thorough. So, you know, give that another read and we'll, we'll get you back on in the future. I thought this episode was excellent and um, I'm going to listen back onto this. I like how you answered some of the questions and uh, hopefully people found it beneficial. All right. Yep. Did you want to say something before we, we, we sign off? Um, not, I mean, well, slam RN. Thank you for saying that. That that does mean a lot because I often, you know, uh, I, I don't really have any shame in saying this, but I there have been times and I've disclosed to friends that um, I I would cry, um, and particularly in a dark time, you know, because I'm already way down with stuff. But I would just cry because I miss my teacher so much, and God took him when I was just a few months old, you know, and 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 he's had such an impact on my life. Why did he have to go and 
um, I, I would just weep in pain um, because I, I want to continue his legacy and he's not here and I can't talk to him face to face, even though that's like what it's like when I listen to his tapes. And so that, that really does mean a lot to me. I'm glad you said that. I really hope I've mm. keeping his legacy going by listening to his tapes. Um, but other than that, thank you, Eli, for having me on. I'm glad things went well um, and that Stroud could be answered at the very least in a succinct uh, fashion, you know, the, the paper I wrote against Stroud and Bailey's 45 pages, it's like 15,000 words. But if you want the gist of it, then that's what we talked about today. Well, you did an excellent job. Thank you so much. Once again, guys, if you have not subscribed to Revealed Apologetics on YouTube, do so now. And if you are not subscribed to the podcast, as I said before, there are some episodes there that will be not available on the YouTube channel, but will be just independently a podcast. So if you want to get some of that um, content, um, please subscribe to the iTunes, um, uh, the, the Revealed Apologetics on iTunes. Also, what would be super helpful, if you enjoyed this show, if you could do me a favor, okay, I'm going to put this on the podcast also. If you can go over to iTunes and write a positive review. I've gotten great reviews so far, but... I, I heard it helps with the algorithm. So if you feel as though uh, you've been blessed by this content, uh, go over to iTunes, write a short, you know, couple of sentence, uh, a positive review, give it the stars, and it would be greatly appreciated. Well, that's it for uh, tonight's live stream. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions or ideas that you'd like me to cover in an episode or perhaps in a blog article on my website, uh, you can reach out to me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. You can check out the blog at revealedapologetics.com. That's the website. And there is also um, a menu there where you can choose to sign up for Presup U, which is an online course that I teach that teaches presuppositional apologetics. So you can check that out at revealedapologetics.com. If you have questions, revealedapologetics at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the YouTube channel if you have not already. Also, I would greatly appreciate if you are really finding the content useful that you leave a positive comment uh, in iTunes. That definitely helps and it's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and God bless.